Welcome to Digging In with ONN, a podcast that focuses on issues that matter to the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Yemi, and my co-host Kavita will be joining us for future episodes. For those of you who are tuning in for the first time, ONN, the Ontario Nonprofit Network, is an independent network of 58,000 nonprofits in Ontario, focused on policy, advocacy, and services to strengthen the nonprofit sector. Our vision is a strong and resilient nonprofit sector, thriving communities in a dynamic province. Last week, we had Pam Upal, who beautifully broke down the ins and outs of decent work. If you haven't checked out that episode, go take a listen. This week, we will be digging in to racial justice and equity within the nonprofit sector, with a specific focus on anti-Black racism. And this week, we are so excited to be chatting with Rudena Bahubeshi about racial justice, anti-Blackness in the nonprofit sector, including the philanthropic sector. Welcome to the show, Ru. Thanks so much for having me, Amy. It's great to be here. And would you mind, for those of folks who um, don't know you, if you could give you, uh, just a short intro about yourself, we'd love to know but about your work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I've worked in the nonprofit sector and charities and a little bit with government for about the last 10 years. I'm really passionate about work that advances equity and justice. Um, in the last several years, I work at a couple of uh, philanthropic foundations. Um, and the last year, I focused actually on going back to school to do a master's of public policy, which I just completed at McGill University. Um, so I reside in Toronto, was born and raised on unceded Algonquin territory, and I'm uh, Black and Arab of Yemeni and Eritrean descent. She has also authored an amazing uh, article, which I encourage you to read, and it will be linked in the readings for this week podcast called Overscrutinized, Underfunded, and Unsupported, How Systemic Anti-Black Racism Affects Those Who Gets Grants and the Sector's Well-Being. So let's, let's, let's dig in. So we use at ONN a framework for decent work that has seven indicators of employment. That includes things like employment opportunities, fair wages, health and retirement benefits, stable employment, advancement in the workplace, equality at rights, culture, and leadership. So based on your article, you named explicitly um, anti-Black racism as impacting stable employment opportunities, the ability to like support being um, able to move up the ladder in workplace, promotions, overall morale, health, well-being, as well as the ability to um, experience like equitable workplaces. So I wanted to ask, based on the stories um, that were shared with you, what are some ways that uh, systemic and interpersonal experiences of anti-Black racism show up in nonprofits and foundations? Let's start there. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a rich question. Uh, Thank you for that. Um, it's interesting. I think nonprofits and charities struggle with a lot of the same challenges as every other sector. Um, so for instance, the way you generally see, uh, racial and gender diversity in the junior rungs of an organization, I think, I think we see those types of realities across sectors, but with mandates focused on advancing justice, be it in housing in food security, if people in the organization haven't worked to develop their own understanding and a meaningful equity lens, 
it really shows. It's like the gap has a spotlight on it, whereas in other environments, perhaps you don't speak as much about addressing inequalities. And so the gap in understanding is not as visible. Um, and given that we're accountable mm-hmm. to and seeking to build relationships with communities pushed furthest to the margins, if workers and, and leadership hasn't done the work that we're talking about, um, the stakes and the risks for those community communities are so high. So while in the nonprofit sector, I, I know I've been in workplaces where, you know, it felt safe and comfortable to raise challenges, to push for change. And there was a really shared commitment, a deep and shared commitment to doing better. And I know I've worked in, and mm-hmm. volunteered in spaces like this, but I also know that they are not necessarily the norm. Um, I think discrimination can happen mm-hmm. really quietly in ways that I would say you're almost harmed mm-hmm. twice. So you're harmed first by the transgression and then again by people who don't acknowledge the transgression or trivialize it in some way and seek to move on. And um, that harm, I don't think, I'm not sure if some people believe it does, but it certainly doesn't sit at your desk at five o'clock when you go home. It comes home with you, it furrows in your brain, it makes you anxious to return right. to work. Uh, and then it swallows your time and it's doubly draining for those individuals from marginalized communities who have so many obligations to their communities. And, you know, after five or six or whenever they leave the office, have a whole host of other responsibility in that community. Um, right. I think it's also important to note that uh, the burden on Black, Indigenous and racialized workers is not only in instances where they experience discrimination, but it's also the way in which the work hits differently for people from these communities. So community sees your presence and that might increase their mm-hmm. trust in your organization. You might feel more invested in the work's success right. or, um, or the organization's commitment. So it becomes really important that the organization has resourced the work and follows through with their intentions as well. Mm-hmm. And I also think it's, it's important that those who don't come from these communities observe how the stakes are different for, for us and then invest more intensely and deeply to share that burden. And that pattern, I think, is also evident when there's EDI work to be done in the organization. So often it's individuals who are queer, who are disabled, who are Black and Indigenous, who do this work and then are really invested in the work because they're concerned with the well-being of workers who come up behind them for bettering the conditions for themselves, perhaps. Um, and then, again, if it's not like widely invested in, it fails and, and harm uh, um, sort of doubles in a way. Um, I feel like I have so much to say about this question, um, but maybe I could keep speak. going. <laughs> I could keep listening. Maybe I could speak a little bit about uh, mental health as well. I, yes, I I've had a, a few peers in the sector um, reach out to me, and I think it's in part because I have written uh, quite publicly about experiences of mental illness. Um, and so individuals who approach mm-hmm. me for, for work like this article and as well as about mental illness um, to sort of speak about their experiences in the sector, because, uh, again, I think mental illness and mental health can be strained in, in conditions that we were just describing. Um, and then these individuals are right. also so invested, again, on behalf of their communities that they don't necessarily feel like there's a way they can just pause their work. And, and so they're just they're just giving and giving and giving. And of course, we know what that leads to in terms of spiraling or burnout and those sort of things. But one story, if I could share an anecdote that really concerned me as of late yes, uh, from a peer in the sector who told me that... Um, and I have to be thoughtful about how I share this story because there is uh, obviously a risk to privacy. But this individual shared with me that um, they were asked to do something they believed to be unethical in their job. 
And I can't speak to the details of what it was, but mm-hmm. when they shared this with me, I thought mm-hmm. their concern was extremely valid. Um, so th- they were asked to do this thing that they were not comfortable doing. They sought to hash it out with their supervisor. Um, eventually, the, the matter was escalated to HR and then HR acted in the interest of that person's supervisor, sort of uh, doubling down on the pressure to do this thing that they didn't that they weren't comfortable doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, they were they were just treated very badly because what ended up happening is they brought up a conversation that this person had with their supervisor several months before in the context of the pandemic where they had shared in passing that they were experiencing mental strain in lockdown, like so many of us. But then yeah. this, uh, this thing that they had shared about their mental well-being was used in this instance to say, oh, this person is mentally unfit and they're acting in ways that are not appropriate and they are unfit for this job. Okay. And so, and that just really concerned me because it's a, it's a brief thing, you know, to share that you're struggling and that you need help. And for that to be used to stigmatize you further, and especially as a black person, right, to be told like, oh, this person is not well, which is something that, you know, black folks get told and, and, and it is a tool for racism and anti-blackness all the time. Um, it's, uh, it's really disconcerting. And um, I think there are so many instances where, um, you know, in the last couple of years, we've seen stories of people raise the alarm about discrimination at work. And I would just insist that the instances are so many more than the ones we've heard about, whether individuals have signed NDAs, whether they're concerned mm-hmm. about future prospects of their work. Um, I think I think we can assume that there are so many instances of, of uh, abuse and, and maltreatment in the workplace than we've heard about. I think when, you know, I hear you speak about this individual coming forth and sharing an experience, um, around mental health and the intersections of race, it it really draws attention that there's a cost when folks speak up, right, about um, the injustices that are happening in the workplace in order to, to, to rectify it. What's also interesting is you talk about the pandemic and mental well-being and how, you know, discrimination and racism and anti-Blackness specifically is, is traumatizing, like experiencing racism in the workplace and experiencing you know, as you, as you talk about being at the desk, you don't get to leave it at the desk because these experiences happen within and outside of the workplace. So there's this constant flood, quite frankly, of experiences that are linked in discrimination in the world. And so it is important that employers recognize that. And, and you know, I'm curious about if you could speak more um, and leaning into, you know, the article that you wrote around systemic anti-blackness and 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 well-being um in the nonprofit sector in the philanthropic sector what is the cost um the emotional and physical cost when folks do speak up what were some of the things that um you noticed in in the sharing within that article specifically around anti-blackness yeah i think that's a great question i mean we sought to take uh, many steps to to preserve the the privacy and the and the identities of the people involved. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the last thing you want to do is when people are you know courageous to to speak about about their experiences of anti blackness to see that hurt them once more by then them being uh, you know uh, punished or or whichever by by the organization. Um, I think it's interesting because there have been. 
a couple of instances where, uh, you know, a person in leadership at an organization that I've heard of has um, been dismissed or, or asked to move on because of uh, their contributions to an unsafe workplace, specifically with discriminatory and differential treatment. Mm. Um, but in those instances, it's quiet. And sometimes the person who speaks out is made very visible. But then um, in the couple instances I'm talking about where, a, you know, a senior leader moves on, those stories are not widely known. Mm. And I'm not speaking about an interest to shame or uh, ruin a person's reputation. But what is the way that we ensure that that person has, you know, invested deeply in to becoming an anti-oppressive leader Mm-hmm. before they simply slip into another leadership role. Right. And that is really unclear to me. Um, but it is interesting, too, when we uh, and I've had this experience in in conferences and academic spaces in nonprofit spaces where, you know, you, you say something and then someone approaches you and says, like, thank you so much for saying that. Right. And often when that's the case, it's a white person, a man, uh, a person who wouldn't experience likely as much scrutiny as I would. And I I don't know what to say. I I thank them for their support, Mm. but I say, I need you to back me in public and not back me in private. Um, Because if you're not, if you're not willing to take that risk and then it's people who, who look like me or who um, might face even greater forms of stigmatization or stereotypes or racism, um, yeah, it's just it's just not terribly <laughs> useful to me to just let me know that you agree in private because it's power in numbers. It's diluting that risk by more people speaking up. And it's people who have less to lose because they're simply not going to be received in the same way mm. um, with the same level of scrutiny. Like, like we need to be in it together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that raises like that's, you know, making it visible, making that that. Um that that sense of allyship or solidarity in the workplace visible. And, um, you know, I'm curious if, you know, you have an idea of some of the conditions that you feel are needed um, to support folks speaking up and to support, you know, um, organizations that want to center racial justice and equity, nonprofits that want to to lean into um, what I like to say, failing better, like continuing to try it. What are the conditions? What can folks tangibly do to alter the conditions uh, of workers so that they are thriving in the workplace? There is well-being centered. There is equity at the center. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I think in so many instances and among the individuals I spoke to for the article, there was movement and organizing mm-hmm. from employees to state what was needed. And often it's a, a reluctance or a lack of readiness. Um, I'm not even suggesting simply like a maliciousness, but uh, for whatever reason, not a, not it's not always acted upon. And so um, I would say that there are so often solutions from right. the people within the org. And it's it's about getting that movement and, and having that acted on. Um, I think there also needs to be really safe uh, channels and clear channels made in advance of uh, a crisis or something uh, difficult happening. And I think this is especially important in the nonprofit sector because we're so often these very small teams 
and it's not clear where you can channel your concerns to. I don't know if it could be uh, an external person who is contracted out by the organizations or um, what have you, but I've seen people in instances where, you know, they're bringing up uh, an issue in the organization and they're doing it to their supervisor or their CEO, their whoever it may be. And uh, that does not necessarily feel safe. And that doesn't encourage someone to uh, feel like they can escalate a problem. And, and it's especially important, right. With like the person who's uh, you know, you may be making uh, what is not a, a very high or comfortable range mm-hmm. in their salary who might have dependents at home. And so it just becomes really unrealistic to ask somebody to take a risk um, that could harm their livelihood because that's going to radically impact their life. So uh, I think there just needs to be all of these things need to be thought of in advance as well, as opposed to, um, okay, something terrible has happened. Where do we go from here? Absolutely. And, and, and what I'm also hearing is a sense of proactive infrastructure that allows people to, to speak their truth allows people to um, invite dialogue that isn't always punitive um, and uh, because it isn't always safe. I like that proactive infrastructure. Yeah, no, it's, it's real because um, you're right. We are often uh, operating from a retroactive, mm-hmm. you know, standpoint. And, and, and that was so obvious in June 2020 and also again in, in June 2021, um, you know, with the unearthing of indigenous uh, children, and then in 2020 with the like resurgence um, of conversations around equity and racial justice in, in the world because of, um, you know, the visibility of mm-hmm. Black death. And, and so, you know, just thinking about leaders and thinking about as one of the, you know, the, the pillars of decent work um, is about people and culture. What can leaders do? Take like, like, for example, June 2020, I guess I'm curious about what leaders can do to really support, like what power, because sometimes I think that there's this sense of like, well, I don't know what to do. I'm a white leader. So, or I don't know what to do. Um, I feel powerless or I'm scared um, because I am afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing. And or I'm sure you can insert like a multitude of other things. And I'm curious about what, you know, folks with power can do to shift conditions as well in the nonprofit sector, in organizations. I think I just I think just staying the course Mm -hmm. really is the most substantial thing that sticks out in my mind, because um, like you mentioned, in terms of, you know, of course, the, the murder of George Floyd was not the first time someone's mm-hmm. a black person has been killed at the hands of police. Those children who were murdered in residential schools was clearly discussed in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's report. Like there are just uh, there are ways that we should that we should know and, and be very clear on what the injustices are. And so it's it doesn't help to simply look to uh, act and, and do something in the moment. But I'm just interested in the long-term vision because mm. even from so many organizations that we've seen release those statements, I like to also see them release the roadmap. Mm. What, what have you done since then? Okay. How are you following up? What are the accountability mechanisms 
Um, so for me, it's just really about staying the course um, because these things don't happen in a moment. And so to see many people seek to act about them in a single moment just sort of, uh, you know, undercuts what really the work takes. Um, so, yeah, I would love to I'd love to see more organizations thinking about their uh, how they stay accountable and what they're doing and what they've done since, uh, you know, those those particular highly visible moments. Mm. Yeah, so I'm I'm curious um so this past summer I spent hours uh, conducting a literature review on BIPOC workers' experiences. And I found a common theme of, of barriers in terms of equitable conditions that are directly linked to white supremacy. And it's something that more recently is becoming more popularized in, in discourse around equity, diversity, and inclusion, and anti-racism. Um, but I was wondering if you could speak to how cultures of white supremacy impacted those stories that you told within the article um and and or you know things that you've witnessed um in the sector i think an extension of a little bit of what i was touching on before when you know you you say something that that you feel needs to be said and then some folks sometimes in private come up to you and, and say i feel that way too as opposed to um uh letting their voice be heard even if they experience less risk i think another piece of that is how ideas are received differently depending on who they come from. Uh, and this was also something I heard from folks I interviewed for the article you mentioned. Um, you know, if we're, you know, for instance, pushing for granting to uh, a community that, or an organization doing great work in the community and that absolutely, you know, needs that funding and all of their outcomes are aligned with what our strategy is seeking to accomplish. Um, I have experienced, and I've also heard of others experiencing, uh, you know, that be received differently coming from someone who looks like me versus a white person who um, is determined to have no bias or be neutral or whatever. Those words that uh, are not real and don't apply. <laughs> Everyone has bias, but then there, it's just it's just unfortunate because there's an urgency that our work requires. And rather than sharing an understanding of that urgency, it's sometimes received as, um, I don't know if it's a lack of due process, which is not the case because, you know, the folks who I've interviewed in my article were talking about going through the same channels in order to uh, direct funding to organizations or, but it's, it's just, it's, it's felt and read differently when it comes from a white person, some recommendations. So I think that is one of the most frustrating manifestations of white supremacy. Um, we are at once told that our lived experience matters and that an organization is seeking someone with lived experience of whatever issue or whatever community that the organization might be concerned with. But then at times that exact characteristic, that exact part of us is undercut or questioned or used to dilute our voice. And that to me is uh, um, really a really frustrating and, and terrible experience. 
Thanks for sharing that. And, and, you know, I think that, um, white supremacy is insidious. Um, and for folks who are wanting to learn more about the different ways that white supremacy shows up in the nonprofit sector, we'll link some resources so that you can do your own unpacking within your organizations, um, and ensure that you're, you know, not perpetuating, or if you are, that you can find ways to course correct. Um, so we'll link uh, a couple of articles on Tema Okun's characteristics of white supremacy, um, as well as Luli wrote an article around the 20 subtle ways that nonprofits uh, perpetuate white supremacy. So definitely check that out. So I, I'm going to move into more of a personal question. So, you know, four years ago, um, I had just moved to Toronto and I was on Twitter and I saw the t- this tweet that you had posted circulating around um, the experiences um, and striving to create space for Black women in nonprofits. And I mean, I think I saw it retweeted hundreds of times. Um, and I remember how profound it was for me um, in terms of just like the someone asking like, what do Black folks or Black specifically, Black women and Black femmes in nonprofits like, like, let's create something like an informal support. And it was the first time that I had, you know, seen anyone really emphasizing that specifically around nonprofits. And of course, that's from my perspective. I'm sure folks have done it, but that for me, it was a pivotal moment. Um, and I just wanted to pivot and, and, and ask, like, you know, we talked about um, informal channels. Uh, we talked about leadership, taking accountability, ensuring that it's not just only when large events happen, um, that there's a way in which organizations and individuals within those organizations can lean into meaningful practices of equity. Um, and I was, you know, I, I was curious about, you know, this other lens and wanted you to, to invite you to speak to the ways that you have witnessed specifically Black, Indigenous, um, folks of color in nonprofits, you know, creating uh, informal systems of care in the workplace um, that don't rely on institutions, because sometimes that goes south. <laughs> and uh, so maybe you could even start off with like how you arrived there, because um, I know it's been a gift for me um, and and many others. That's so kind of you to say. I mean, I really appreciate that uh, you feel away. It's been such a gift to me. I've made so many amazing friendships from uh, that tweet. I can't even recall uh, what the impetus was. I mean, other than just seeing uh, brilliant Black and, and women and non-binary folks exiting the sector, frankly, I think I was seeing a fair amount of that when I tweeted it. And I was sort of, uh, uh, and again, I know there are there are spaces I've been in the nonprofit sector that have been enriching. And then I also, um, you know, am indebted to the brilliance of so many uh, Black folks in the community that um, it was sort of like, how do we do this work together. I mean, not at the, not at the cost of our wellness, mm-hmm. but also like to try and create a healthier sector for those who are younger than us to try and advance uh, the causes that we so well understand that are affecting our communities and the needs. Um, and then, yeah, I just, it, it became such a nourishing place for, uh, at first it was really about thinking about some of those big questions. And then it was also all just about, you know, um, 
supporting one another uh, in the work, getting feedback from one another. Like I mentioned, sometimes when something happens that is bad in an organization, you're often looking over your shoulder like, is, anyone, is everyone else feeling what I'm feeling? Or, and sometimes you don't get that confirmation. And so to go to a space and be like, this was bad, right? <laughs> People just be like, yeah, here's what I've done in my organization. Here's what, and then sort of just get support from one another that way as well. Um, it also was interesting because uh, in that first meeting, there were, I think, a number of, uh, a good a good few, if I'm not mistaken, of people from one organization who hadn't, who also hadn't chatted about joining. And then it sort of became a, okay, this is not a place that we should all go to work um, okay. because it does become like an, a, an informal uh, network also to hear about where some of the places are that you might not uh, want to seek out a career because unfortunately, uh, you know, if there are many people who look like us who experience um, a, a negative experience, uh, of course, we're not going to go want to go work there. And and I think those channels exist also so far beyond the the group that you and I participate in as well. Um, but yeah, I think it's about, uh, um, advancing outcomes for our communities. Um, I think it's about also finding healthy spaces for us to work in and for those younger than us that we want to, you know, support and, or be mentor to. That validation is often what, in my experience, you know, doing this work within the nonprofit sector, as well as at my role at ONN as network engagement manager and, and speaking to different networks and nonprofits that um, are striving to embark on work around racial justice and equity, that folks, especially BIPOC workers, are really looking to be validated. And like, that's the point of departure to say, yes, this is this is your experience. Um, Because often I think that it gets super complicated and, and, um, you know, dismission, being dismissed has a larger role. And so having those informal spaces where folks can be like, you know, this is my reality and and getting that validation is so incredibly important that exists outside of the institution. Because as you spoke earlier, there's, um, you know, at times there's, there's issues of liability that impact how employers are able to, whether it be within human resources able to really validate the experiences of employees. So we're coming to the end of um, our chat. And, you know, I I just, there's so many nuggets of gold um, that I'm leaving with today. And, you know, some of the, the, the core pieces for me that, you know, really stood out is that the answers are within us. Right. Like the, the takeaways that I'm, I'm leaving with are the answers are within the organization. Right. Often folks will look to outside consultants to support a process, which is fine. Um, and also, you know, uh, what I'm hearing is that people within the organization have the solutions. It's about creating the conditions where they can speak their truth to better sense of um, to create better senses of belonging and, you know, equitable working conditions. Um, that it's important that if you are someone who's going to be acting in the spirit of allyship or solidarity, um, that you do it loudly rather than quietly because there is power and representation and that peer-to-peer networks are something and peer-to-peer supports, whether within, within the organization, outside of the organization are so incredibly, um, important around mentorship and sustainability within the sector. 
And so I wanted to to invite you, Rudana, to share any last, like, is there anything that you want folks to walk away with? Any last words that you're like, I really want folks to to walk away with this information and to really sit with it. I think one thing, one of the things the peer-to-peer networks has been useful for and important for is uh, helping bridge a gap of a bit of a lack of transparency that exists in some nonprofits with regards to salary. Mm-hmm. Even though we really understand how much there is pay disparity and how much that affects in particular, you know, indigenous women, black women, disabled folks, um, and other communities experiencing marginalization. And, and we might talk about it. We still see among so many nonprofits and, and foundations, even a lack of transparency with, uh, what uh, a pay, the pay range is, what the pay band is, and don't still connect the dots between creating a more equitable workplace and c- conditions with clarity on that. Um, mm-hmm. And something the peer-to-peer network has been useful to me is just to get us speak openly about those types of things, about uh, you know hiring contracts and things like that that I don't always understand, and I think a lot of us don't always understand. Um, and I think the sector could easily fill that gap by being more transparent. Um, I think that's a really simple, low-hanging uh, fruit as well. Yeah, pay transparency. Pay transparency. Because, yeah, that, that, that's a really great point. And I think we're going to dive into that in future episodes around the importance of equitable uh, realities of pay transparency and how it's inherently racialized. Um, and we often mm. find those at the margins are the ones that are most impacted by a lack of it. So thanks for finishing us off on that note. Um, thank you again, Rudina, for joining us again, folks. We want to invite you to read over scrutinized, underfunded and undersupported how systemic anti-blackness affects those who get grants and sector workers uh, well-being. It's an amazing read. We also want to invite you to share some of your experiences. And so if folks are looking for more information or wanting to connect with us, uh, you can reach us at theonn.ca. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I'm your host, Jamie. And as mentioned previously, Kavita will be joining us in future episodes. We hope that you'll join us as we continue to dig into issues that matter to the non-profit sector from a decent work perspective. Make sure to share, rate, and subscribe so you know when episodes are live. Thanks for digging in with us.